0: This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. As we just sang, I pray again, hallelujah, you are good. And it is to your goodness that we look, uh, as you have recorded in your word, that you would again reveal yourself, draw us near again to you, Remind us who we are and who you are and the great chasm that you have crossed to bring us back to you. All of this, Father, we, we pray that you would do, and we pray that you would do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 30, 131, excuse me, as we continue our study in the Psalms of Ascent, if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. But before we get started this morning, I want to take a moment to point out how this psalm perfectly exhibits why we at Cedar Springs Church are so uh, concerned, uh, why, why we're so dedicated to expositional preaching. Now, expositional is a big word. Uh, many people think it just means verse by verse. Verse. And and that's part of it, but technically you could preach verse by verse and not preach expositionally. So, let me say, define, explain what expositional preaching really is. Expositional preaching is where the main point of your sermon, how that main point is developed, and even the tone of your sermon is dictated by the scripture, by text. To put that uh, simply... Expositional preaching is where the main point, the organization, and the tone of the sermon is determined by the shape, the organization, and the tone of the text. Now, what does that have to do with Psalm 131? Well, one of the reasons expositional preaching is so important is that it forces us to let the Bible determine what God wants us to hear, not us picking and choosing. For example, look at the end of Psalm 131 at the beginning of verse 3. David says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Sound familiar? If you weren't here last week or if you forgot, look at the end of Psalm 130 real quick, the beginning of verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. What do we do with that? Because, I mean, come on, we already heard it. So we should skip it, right? We already heard about hoping in the Lord. So what do we do with that? Or, should we trust that God wrote it this way because He thought we needed to hear about hope twice? Well, I can tell you what this church is going to do. We're going to trust that God thought we needed to hear about hope twice. Because whether you're a Christian or not, The truth is, so many of us need a better hope. Because so often we try so hard to get hope. Hope is something that everyone is constantly chasing. Yet, like dry sand, it seems to be one of those things that the harder you hold on to it, the faster it slips out of your hand. So if that's you, if you need a better hope this morning, I've titled this sermon, The Building Blocks of Hope the building blocks of hope, because that's what David wants to show us. He wants to leave behind the the failed cliches of our culture's attempts at hope. He wants to leave behind the the worn-out cliches of the Dr. Phil's, the useless phrases of the Deepak Chopra's and all that garbage, and answer a more fundamental question everyone has about hope, which is, where does lasting hope actually come from? What are the building blocks of of an enduring biblical hope? And that's the question I want to answer this morning. What are the building blocks of a lasting hope? We're going to do that by diving a little deeper into this passage than I usually might. So strap in, get ready to follow me through these very dense three verses beginning with verse 1, where David tells us that the first building block of hope is humility. The first building block of hope is humility. Psalm 131, in verse 1, David writes, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, the first thing I want you to see is the extent of David's humility. First, his humility begins in his heart, the the seat of his emotions. That place the Bible says is both the the origin of both your thoughts and your actions. Which makes sense because he says next that his eyes, or his, his countenance, is not raised too high. Your translation might say that his eyes are not too haughty, too proud. Meaning, He doesn't have his ambitions set on things that are above his station. Which naturally leads to lastly, he says he says, uh, he doesn't occupy himself with things above his pay grade. Things that are too great. Literally, David says, I don't go walking in things that are too great for me. In other words, like I said, David is describing a pervasive humility a humility that is born on the inside and is exhibited outward through his, 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 uh, his countenance and his actions, which I don't know about you, that is a humility that is rather foreign to me. Which leads me to ask, where does one get that kind of humility? I mean, if it's a building block of hope, I want it. But if I'm honest... I certainly don't have it yet. So where does that kind of hope come from? Well, I think, where does that kind of humility come from? Excuse me. I think scripture is pretty clear. The kind of humility David is describing describing is is born out of two things that work together in tandem. And those two things are the Holy Spirit working together with the school of hard knocks. Let me explain what I mean. By, By the school of hard knocks, I just mean life. You know those fun lessons, where where you learn that you're not in charge of the universe, much less sometimes your own life. Those lessons. However, we could go through those life lessons on humility and still not become more humble. We could instead, like many people do, go through those life lessons and just become more bitter, more self-absorbed. That's not how our God works. He doesn't allow those circumstances, those life lessons to go uh, to waste on our journey of sanctification to become more like Him, which is why the Holy Spirit takes advantage of those life lessons that God has ordained in order to affect heart change in us. Think of it like this. The Holy Spirit is the carpenter. The life lessons are the sandpaper. And we are the wood that He is smoothing. He's using those life lessons to smooth us out and make us more like Christ. For example, you remember James and John? Jesus called them the sons of thunder because they were so arrogant. Like that one time Jesus stopped in the Samaritan village to, to rest and they kicked him out. The Samaritans kicked him out. So James and John were like, hey, Jesus, you want us to call down fire on them? Literally, what they said is, hey, boss, you want we should break his knees? They thought they were Jesus' muscle. That was amplified later when their mother marched up to Jesus and was like, Hey, forget about these other ten chumps. Which one of my sons is going to sit on your left and which one on your right of your throne? But years later, after the Holy Spirit had used extremely difficult lives to sanctify these men, James explained in chapter 4 of his letter that the reason that we fight and quarrel and and have all this conflict in our life, is because we think we know what's best. He says, the reason we fight and quarrel is because we think we know how things should go. In other words, the one who expected a place at Jesus' throne, through the Holy Spirit working in his life, through his life lessons, that guy is now warning us about the pride of our own expectations. Now, let me just pause because maybe you're wondering what does any of this stuff about humility have to do with hope? Because doesn't humility kind of sound a little like the opposite of hope? I mean, isn't hope essentially based on a a confidence of outcome? Well, I think James hit hit the nail on the head when he spoke about our expectations. Meaning one of the greatest prides we have to let go of, in order to have the hope David is speaking of in Psalm 131, is the pride of expectation. It's one of the greatest prides that we have to give up, the pride of expectation. It's the pride that begins in the heart and leads to us setting our eyes onto things we don't have any control over. The pride that says we have not only the authority, but the ability to determine what tomorrow will hold. And God needs to listen. Which makes it the pride that that causes us to lose hope when things don't go the way we expect them to. Test me on this. Think about your own life. Isn't the reason we often feel hopeless because we've built our hope on our own expectations? expectations of what our marriage will be like, our finances, our housing, our jobs, even our kids. How often do we find ourselves struggling for hope because life didn't turn out the way we thought it should? We decided how much money we were going to make. We decided what job we were going to have and which promotions we were going to get. We decided how perfect our kids would be. And when those expectations aren't met, what's left? My wife will tell you that when she's talking to Jesus about these things and she's, she's talking to Jesus about her expectations not coming to fruition, she'll, she'll tell you that oftentimes Jesus will pick up a little bit of a Yiddish accent uh, when, when he responds and he says something like, Well, look who knows so much. Think about where the humility of David in Psalm 131 is coming from. He was anointed king in 1 Samuel 16. And by anointed king, I mean God himself said, He is who I want to be king. Imagine if God told you something like that. Something was going to happen in your life. Imagine if God came out, hung speakers on the moon, and said something was going to happen to your Your kids are going to turn out okay. Said that straight to your face. He said, your marriage is going to be healed. Your financial hardship is going to be resolved. Whatever it is that's bothering you, God said that was going to happen. How many years need to go by before you begin to wonder if God forgot about you? Or or should I maybe say weeks or days or hours? Because in David's case, it would be 15 years before Saul, the current king, would die and David would officially be inaugurated as the king of Israel for 15 years God allowed Saul to try to kill the man that God said he wanted to be king. For 15 years, God allowed David to live on the run. For 15 years after God said, you're the king I choose, David lived like a fugitive. You think that's what David expected when he was anointed king in 1 Samuel 16? I can tell you it wasn't, because if you just look at the Psalms David wrote while he was struggling with those expectations, you can hear it. For example, Psalm 62, David said, Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. He's struggling with this idea that it doesn't matter what state, you know, what, what, what class you are. He says, For my God alone my soul waits in silence, because only in Him do I hope. Or in Psalm 42, he's arguing with himself. He's saying, why are you so downcast, my soul? Hope in God. Can you you hear how he's battling his own expectations for for hope? But look what God taught him through those 15 years. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. I'm the greatest king Israel ever had. He says, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. You see, the first building block of hope is humility. Listen, because humility is the birthplace of humbly submitting our expectations of how we think things should go to the one who actually ordains how things will go. Building the first building block of humility of hope, excuse me, is humility, because humility is the birthplace of humbly submitting our expectations of how we think things should go to the one who actually decides how they will go. Which leads to the second building block of hope. Because you see, I can be humble and still not have hope. I can humbly believe that I don't know what's best, that I don't have control over tomorrow, that I don't know how things are going to turn out. I can humbly believe that, and that could simply lead to me to, to more anxiety and bitterness and despair because I don't think anyone else does either. But scripture tells us different, doesn't it? For example, how would you finish this sentence? Finish this sentence for me. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God by what? By doing what? How, how would you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God? I think our reflex would be to, to, to say something like, by not thinking too highly of yourself, or by treating others better than yourself, or something like that. But listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Skip the little interjectory phrase, How? How do we humble ourselves to the mighty hand of God? Peter says, by casting all your anxieties on Him. That's how you humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, as you cast your anxieties on Him. And David says, if you look at verse 2 in Psalm 131, But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul Within me. So, do you see it? Do you see how Peter is connecting humility and trust just like David is in Psalm 131? In other words, in addition to humility, the second building block of lasting hope is trust. The second building block of lasting hope is trust. Let me show you how David gets there. Follow his progression through this. Imagery of verse 2. He begins by saying, he has calmed and quieted his soul. In other words, he's saying he has this deep peace. You remember that great theological film, Kung Fu Panda? And there's that scene where Master Shifu is meditating in his dojo, and he gets interrupted. He's like, inner peace, inner peace. And then he gets interrupted, and he's like, Whoever's making that flapping noise, would you please quiet down? And like a duck falls out of the roof, and, and his peace is ruined. Well, this isn't that kind of peace. David's not describing a peace that is dependent on whether there's a duck in your rafters or any other circumstance. Notice David says he has calmed and quieted his soul, meaning there was a reason for his soul not to be calm and quiet. Now, we don't know what that reason was, but David found a peace that took some amount of time and effort to achieve because it lies outside of those circumstances. So how did he achieve it? How did he achieve that peace? Did he he grit his teeth? Did he bear down and he say, peace, I'm going to have peace, dang it you follow Master Shifu's ten steps to inner peace? No. Notice how David describes his calm and quiet soul. He says twice in the second half of verse 2, like a weaned child with its mother. That's how David describes the peace he has. In other words, his peace is not coming from a resolved circumstance, but from contented trust in the person he's with. Think about it. A child has had nothing but their mother's milk for months. And then one day you shove that gross rice cereal in their mouth and they're like, ugh, what are you trying to do to me? And they spit it in your face. It takes time to wean a child, it's a process. But when they're weaned, what happens? When they're weaned, they're not rooting around for every two hours, you know, bugging you for something to eat because they're content. And they're content because you've taught them to trust you. You've taught them to trust you that they're going to be okay. You've taught them to trust you that even though I don't feed you every hour and a half, you're still going to get the nutrients you need. I remember one time when my granddaughter was barely about a year old and her parents' lives were falling apart. Uh, Her father had quit two jobs because he was being blatantly defrauded in both of them. And after running out of multiple options in the course of a few months, they decided to drop everything, move across the country without a job, live in a house his family owned, which was a strained relationship to say the least. In other words, it was a situation that that was at best uh, horrific chaos. But here's the thing. My little granddaughter didn't care a bit. She was perfectly fine. She didn't care about the money or where they lived or how how the world was crumbling down around her parents. She had her mom, she had her dad, and she knew they loved her, and that's all she needed. They didn't know where they're going to get their next meal from. She's cool. She had a contented trust that gave her peace in the midst of genuine chaos. And it's such a picture of what God wants us to be. When he calls us to be like children, he's calling us to be like a child. This contented trust. I got my dad. That's all I need. That's the kind of trust David is talking about in verse 2. That's the kind of trust that hope is built on because it's the kind of trust that transcends circumstances. Which is why I think one of the greatest deceptions that the enemy has perpetrated on our culture is that contentment is found in circumstances. It's found in achievements. It's found in wealth. As a culture, we are infected with this idea that once I have this thing, once I achieve this goal, once that thing arrives, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be content. I want you to listen to this poem I came across this week. Keep in mind, this was written by a 14-year-old named Jason Lehman in 1989. He wrote, It was spring, but it was summer I wanted, The warm days and the great outdoors. Then it was summer, but it was fall I wanted, The colorful leaves and the cool dry air. Then it was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. Then it was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. Then I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. Then I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. Then I was old, But it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. Now my life is over, and I never got what I wanted. I don't think I've heard a much more apt description of our culture. And let me balance this by saying, not only is contentment not found in having or getting or achieving, but contentment isn't found in in asceticism or, or denial either. The idea that you can achieve contentment by rejecting pleasure is just just as flawed. In fact, Calvin said in his Institutes that that not enjoying that which God has intended for our pleasure is an expression of ingratitude toward Him. But because we've so associated contentment with, with our circumstances, we think you can tell who's the better Christian by who's enjoying life less. It's like the good, you know, the heathens for Thanksgiving, they had the big turkey and all the sides and they're laughing and having a good time. But no, the good Christians, they they got like two pieces of dried toast, a square of spam, and a big bucket of water. They're the real Christians. It's such a perversion of Scripture. I mean, isn't that really what Paul says to the rich in 1 Timothy chapter 6 in verse 17? Doesn't he say, as for the rich in this present world, charge them to give away all their riches? Isn't that what he says? No. He says, charge them not to be arrogant. There's the humility. Or, set their hopes on their riches. Like, like warn the rich not to lay in bed at night and think, okay, I got 12 months of income in the bank, I got all my new toys and stuff that I need, so I'm good. I got everything I need. He says, charge them not to do that, but to put their hope where? In God, who what? Provides us with everything to enjoy. We might say, charge the rich to enjoy what God has given them without trusting in the gift instead of the gift giver. In other words, that's the point. Just like David's illustration of the child and the mother in verse 2. Lasting contentment is not found in our circumstances. It's not found in what we have or what we don't have. It's found in trusting a person. Listen to how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in the second half of verse 11. He says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. How? How did he learn that? Listen to this statement of trust. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He's not talking about winning your soccer game or getting that promotion. He's saying, I can endure terrible things and I can endure good things because he strengthens me to do it. Paul's contentment is not found in his circumstances, but in his trust of God. And don't miss how Paul said he achieved this contentment back in verse 11. He said, for I have what? Learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. The great apostle Paul had to learn how to be content. Let me take that down. In other words, this second building block of hope, it's just like the first. It's learned. Let me say that differently. If you're in this room and you believe in Jesus Christ, you have involuntarily been enrolled in the school of contentment. You are enrolled in the school of contentment. It's the school where you learn that contentment is born out of trust. And trust is the bedrock of lasting hope. I don't know about you, maybe you did good in school, but I may or may not have been known to skip class a few times. How are you doing in the school of contentment? Are you listening to the teacher? Are you doing your homework? Because listen, what Scripture is telling us is that the culmination of your education at this school is not a diploma It's not an achievement. It's it's not a qualification. No, the culmination of your education at the school of contentment is your trust in a person. Let me say that one more time. Contentment at its core is a matter of trusting a person. Just like David described the weaned child in verse 2. His contentment is not in their circumstances, but in the arms of their mother. So how do you know what your grade is in that school? How how, how do you know if you're you're doing okay in the school of contentment? Because let's be honest, it's easy for us as Americans to say, I'm going to enjoy everything God has blessed me with, just like Scripture says, because I don't put trust in the things I have. It's easy to say that. And I would say that's great, and I mean it. That's a wonderful thing if you can answer these questions. Do you need more? Do you need more? Are you going to enjoy everything God has given you because you don't put your trust in your things, but I need more things? Or... If God took something, something that you have or something that you're excitedly waiting for, if He took that, would you still be content because you trust that that's what God ordained for your life? Another way to think about it is this If God has given you a lot, how much of it are you comfortable giving away? Because that's not where you find your contentment. You don't need to hold on to it. Let me be blunt. I don't talk about this very often. But we as Americans need to ask ourselves the question, how content does our tithes say we are? Does your tithe say that you have an incessant need to buy things? Or does it say that you are content with what you have? Because contentment comes from trusting God. And trust is a building block of lasting hope. And, I, and, I, and listen, God never demands a blind trust from us. He never demands that we just trust Him like that. He, he only asks us to believe that, he, that He's faithful the way He's proven Himself over and over and over again. He only asks us to believe the black and white evidence that we have in front of us. Paul literally said this in Romans chapter 15. In verse 4, he said, for whatever was written in former days was written for us It's written for our instruction that through the in, through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have what hope In other words he's saying the scriptures prove we can trust God so we can have hope And how does scripture prove that Well through all the stories where at the time of the story the people thought Something had gone terribly wrong, and then God proved that it was for their good. Like the story when he almost wiped out Jacob's family with a famine, but then later he proved that he used that famine to drive them to Egypt, where he needed to incubate that, that family into the promised nation that he had promised Abraham from 72 to millions. Scripture shows you what God was doing. Or the story where God led that great nation into the desert, where they swore for 40 years they took a wrong turn somewhere. But Scripture's very clear. Listen, it was during those 40 years that they got to see some of the most vivid pictures of who their God was. It is in the wilderness that God shows us who He is. They got to see Him part the Red Sea and provide manna from thin air and water out of rocks. The point is, none of these people knew what was going on at the time, just like we don't. In fact, all of them were certain that something had gone horribly wrong, just like we are. That our life is over. This isn't right. This is a huge mistake, God. Get back to the controls. But the Bible is very clear that these stories have been recorded, so when our lives fall apart, like they felt theirs did, we have ample evidence to trust that God is not only sovereign, but He is good. In fact, he would eventually record a story where not only everyone involved, but even nature was sure something terrible had happened. He would record the story of himself being nailed to the cross by his own creation and then buried in a borrowed tomb because he was too poor for his own. Another story that when that happened, not even the sun could bring itself to shine in the middle of the day. But scripture reveals that that happened on purpose. On purpose. Before we even knew we needed it, so Jesus could stand in front of God bearing your sins and mine to bear the wrath of God on our behalf. Until three days later, Scripture tells us that, as horrible as that situation seemed at the time, three days later, Jesus came walking out of the tomb, dragging the head of death behind him, just like David did Goliath's. Paul is telling us in Romans 15. That that story of Jesus Christ coming out of the grave is recorded so that you may hope. When your life seems like it's falling apart, the Bible says Jesus walked out of the grave. When you feel like something is going terribly wrong, the Bible says, but Jesus walked out of the grave. When you wonder why this won't get fixed, why your heart hurts so much, the Bible says Jesus walked out of the grave. So you can hope. Humility and trust. These are the two building blocks of lasting hope. Which is exactly what David says. It's exactly how he concludes in verse 3. Psalm 131 O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And I don't want you to skip over the last line of this psalm because it describes the kind of incredible hope that is built on humility and trust. It's not a hope that tucks tail and runs at the first sign of adversity. No, the hope built on humility and trust is an eternal hope. Humility that that God knows what tomorrow holds, not me and then contented trust that whatever happens tomorrow, wherever I am in life, it's not some cosmic mistake, but I'm right where my sovereign God wants me to be for my good. That's where lasting hope is found. That kind of humility and that kind of trust are the building blocks of an eternal hope that can't be shaken. Even if that person says to you that thing you never thought they would say or do, Even even when that sorrow that you never expected, it breaches the walls of your family. Even when despair starts knocking on your heart. When you see something around you crumbling that you never expected to crumble. The hope that is built on humility and trust in God stands forever. It remains steadfast through the ebbs and flows of life. So I ask you, do you want that hope? Do you want that kind of hope? Then, saint, humble yourself to the sovereign will of God. Stop being angry at Him when tomorrow doesn't turn out like you expected it to be. And trust that He will keep you and grow you through wherever He ordains tomorrow to hold Because that's a hope that is not dependent on our circumstances, but a hope that is anchored to the throne room in heaven. Because it's a hope that was born out of the wounds of Jesus Christ. It's a hope that was then tempered in the grave where he lied dead. Which means it is a hope that is as alive as he is. Which means just like Peter said in 1 Peter 1, it's a hope that is kept "...imperishable, undefiled, and unfading in heaven for you when you get there. Which means it's a hope that can humbly and trustfully say, Immovable my hope remains, though shifting sands before me lie. Because the one who washed away my stains shall bear me safely to the skies. Because built into Christ secure I stand, for with his spirit I've been sealed." by grace I'll see the promised land where all my sorrow shall be healed. Stand with me, please, and let's make that...